again, understanding why is critical. You know, if you just told me, I don't like the word formula, I'm not going to take it out because of that. But what you did, ironically, is you told me a story as an artist about why that word doesn't resonate with you and actually turns you off. And so I learned why. And we're in the why business. Um, and if we can understand why people feel a certain way or why they do or don't want to do something, then we can be that much more effective you know, at helping our clients craft the messages and stories that they need in order to, to move the needle. While story invites us to ask powerful questions, your life and your story are shaped by the questions you ask. What is the story that you ache to tell? The only way to become a better storyteller is by telling more stories. The only hope we have are the stories we tell. Stories not bound by what is possible. We are proud to be storytellers. David's work has always been fascinating to me. He's an organizational leader, marketer, business developer, writer, and the CEO of Engages and Dial Smith. He and his team combined research, behavioral science, storytelling, all to craft and refine high stakes messages and content. Their tools and methods deliver proven results. And because of their research and understanding of behavioral science, they really understand how to tell stories that resonate. We actually do a lot of work in direct response marketing, so that's the fancy way of saying infomercials. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we uh, really, our work, almost everything we do involves selling something, whether that's selling a person or another company a product or service, or whether that's selling you a particular political position or whether that's selling you on donating to a nonprofit. Um, it really all comes down to, to selling you on something, trying to change your mind or, or change your perception or move your way of thinking in a direction that, you know, that our clients want you um, to move into. And the ultimate goal is to, is to really make you want to do that. We're not, we're not trying to trick anybody. Um, we don't get into that kind of work and we've walked away from that kind of work. But if we can help position something to influence you in that direction and then you go there willingly, then uh, it's a win for everybody. If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know that I have a background in performing magic. And it's interesting because what David does really is magic. I mean, he actually uses a lot of the tricks illusionists use in terms of influencing an audience to believe something. In the wrong hands, that can be pretty dangerous, even deceptive. But David tries to be responsible. He says he's just using behavioral science to tell a good story for his clients. I think that all effective storytellers, whether they know it or not, are deploying behavioral science principles in the stories that they're crafting. They just don't know it. They can't put a, they don't put a label on it. They may not have the education in it. It's the behavioral science researchers who have really reverse engineered the most successful stories and the way people make decisions. And they have been able to put labels on what it is that storytellers already do. And even if the story is just for fun, even if it's just a fairy tale to tell your, your kid as they go to bed, 
Um, all of these stories are built on these principles that are designed to take people on a particular ride or a particular journey. Um, yeah, but it's just not always necessarily uh, you know, labeled that way. Yeah, I remember at the conference this past year, Story 2018, you gave this really incredible talk. And at the beginning of the talk, you led by telling two different stories in two different ways. I guess you could argue that one of them wasn't even a story. For those who weren't there, kind of walk us through what you did and why. So yeah, that, that's exactly what I did. Um, there, there were two versions of a, of a pretty um, emotional but fact-based story um, uh, related to healthcare. And it was a story about a friend of mine who's been uh, battling cancer and, and um, uh, actually got sepsis, which is a blood infection, um, while his immune system was compromised during chemotherapy. Uh, the, I'll cut to the, the end of the story that he's doing very well now. And uh, it was a true story, but um, we work together. He's back at work. He's doing great. Uh, so I, I don't want the whole story to be a bummer, but um, we specifically used that story because I wanted to put people in a place where they would have an emotional reaction to what I was talking about, and they would react to both versions of the story differently. So one version of the story was very fact-based, where I told a lot of facts and figures about the percentages of people who contract this disease or this condition and what the survival rate is and how much money it costs for pharmaceutical companies to develop drugs to combat these things. So it was matter of fact, um, not full of a whole lot of emotion. Uh, and then the second story, I told it as a narrative about a friend of mine who had this condition and what he's gone through and how if we didn't have the, the modern health care that we have today, uh, he may not be around today. And so people connect with that type of story on a much deeper level. They just don't necessarily know why. So then what we did is um, I unveiled the four behavioral science principles that I had deliberately baked into that narrative story. And we demonstrated exactly what phrases I used in order to tap into those. So I won't go through them, them all here. We actually do have a recording of the talk online if anyone wants to see the whole thing. But um, for instance, we used one called the self-reference effect, which in behavioral science relates to um, the fact that you are much more likely to relate to a story if you believe that that story in some way relates back to you. So I started that narrative story with, uh, you know, you may have someone in your life who, or if you're like me, you've also been through X. And that immediately primes you out of the gate for the fact that, hey, this might be relevant to me. Instead of me just launching in talking about cancer or sepsis or expensive drugs that you may have no relation to at all. So there are a whole host of those, what are called cognitive biases, that you know that that's how people are predisposed to receive information, perceive it, and make decisions. Uh, so you can then craft stories using those to help influence the way, uh, the way those are going to resonate with people. Man, that's so good. Can you give us a second one? Oh, another one we talked about in there in that same talk was one that's called loss aversion. Uh, this is an interesting one because there's been research done that um, has proven that the way you will feel about a loss is twice as acute as you would about a similar gain. And the example, the example I used in the story, the second example to prove out my story uh, was if I gave you $1,000, you would love me. 
But if I took $1,000 from you, you'd not only hate me, but you would feel the loss of that $1,000 twice as acutely as the gain. That's used in political messaging all the time where you'll hear constant talking about how this political group is going to take this from you. And if you elect this person, you're going to lose something. And it's tapping into that, that loss aversion, which is so much more powerful than saying, if you elect me, I'm going to give this to you. It's way more powerful to say, if you elect the other person, they're going to take this from you. Yeah. I don't want to spend this entire podcast talking about politics, but it seems so timely right now. Um, knowing what you know, based on your vocation and your line of work, how do we choose a different narrative for the sake of a nation when we have people like you who are experts saying, but this works better? Are there times where you just go, I'm going to ignore the science just for the sake of being a better human being? How do you struggle with that tension? That's a good question. Uh, I'm in the fortunate position that um, I get to pick and choose who I work for. So for myself and our company, we only put ourselves in a position to help develop effective messaging for those that we want to work with um, and that we believe in, or at least most importantly, that we don't flat out not believe in. Uh, We certainly appreciate different points of view, and we know that our point of view Mm -hmm. isn't always right, but there are also some really extreme ones right now that just as an organization, we've we've chosen that, that we don't want to be a part of. So as we're going through our work, we really do try to find a genuine way to craft a message or a story or content that will get the point across in a very, in a genuine way, in a non-manipulative way. And to use all of these biases that we know of, as we said earlier, for good and not for evil. I'll give you another example of one that's very common. It's called framing. And if anyone listening to this has heard of any of these, they've heard of framing. It's the most common one, the easiest one to understand. And um, we exemplified that at, at Story 2018 through an experiment we did where we told people a story about the calorie content of food. Um, And we were imagining that we were the American Heart Association or some medical group that wanted to uh, influence people to make healthier food choices and to control their weight because of the obesity epidemic in the US. So one version of the story that we told talked about five food items and the calorie counts of those food items. The second story we told was the same food items, but it was the amount of exercise required to burn off the calories in that food. And we never mentioned the actual calorie count. And so every research participant heard one version or another. This was a replicant of another study that had been done in the past many years ago that was very effective. And what we found unsurprisingly was that those who heard the exercise narrative were thought that the food choices were much less good. We didn't position it as bad, but the question was, how good of a food choice do you think this item would be when you're watching calories? Um, so we didn't ask whether it's good or bad food or healthy or not healthy food, but you know, some really healthy foods are also very calorie dense. And, if, and that's all very relevant too. So we get into those semantics of what is the ultimate goal of what we're trying to do? If the ultimate goal is to get people to eat healthier, then we might, one of the examples in our study, 
study was almonds. We might encourage people to eat more nuts and more almonds because of all the, the great things that are in almonds, the fatty acids and the protein, et cetera. However, nuts are very calorie dense. So if, the, if our objective as a communicator is to get people to watch their calorie intake in order to lose weight because they're dangerously overweight, then we may not want to put nuts in that particular diet simply for that particular reason. So I don't want to sound like I'm getting too hung up on, you know, the semantics of whether or not we want people to eat nuts or not, but it comes down to that level of detail where you have to start with the objective. What do you want to influence people to do? And in that kind of messaging, every phrase and often every word matters. And whether you tell someone that this particular item has 150 calories, which might not sound like a big deal to them, but then we tell them that they have to jog for 45 minutes to burn that off, suddenly they're far less interested in eating that 150 calories that, that sounded like no big deal before. Another good example of this is American politics, where telling the truth is no longer as effective as just telling a good story that makes people feel a way they want to feel, regardless of whether or not the facts behind the story check out. Behavioral science is powerful, whether you're using it to sell a new mop or to sell a particular vision of the country, but it has uses that are far, far beyond just politics and infomercials. What do you say to the person out there who's thinking, while listening to us talk about this, like, I I don't have a political campaign going on. I'm not running an infomercial anytime soon. I just want to make great art and tell great stories like films or finish my book. What does the world of behavioral science and your work have to do with their work? How How relevant is it? That's a great question. And that's where, like you said earlier, getting away from the notion of quote, behavioral science and social psychology and cognitive biases, those don't relate to the, the average person trying to do good work, creating art, writing stories, creating content. So what I want everyone to know is that these principles are all sound. And like I said earlier, you're probably using them more than you thought. Um, but I'll give you an example of another way you can think about it in your work that's much more approachable to people who haven't studied it. Um, so the name of our company is Engages, And we deliberately came up with that name because we wanted to know what's more engaging than engaging, right? Like a lot of people have cracked the code on how to make something engaging. And we want to find a way to go a step further beyond engagement to really be able to create, a, deliberately create a movement, move people in from one direction to another or toward a particular end. So lately, I've actually been working on trying to come up with a formula for how to make something engages. And I'll, uh, you know, since it's just you and me here, I'll go ahead and I'll test it out on you guys <laughs> a little bit. And I think it's the kind of thing that can help people as they're crafting stories and crafting content, kind of check off the boxes and think, okay, do I have this covered? Do I have this covered? Do I have this covered? I mean, I want to take the art out of storytelling by any means. Um, you know, but even when you listen to master storytellers who you've crafted stories for Pixar and others, they, you know, there's, there is a, 
um, uh, Matthew Lund calls it a story spine, or there's a, there's a story ladder, or there's a framework of some kind. Um, so this, this kind of thing's deployed a lot. So where we're going with the notion of how to be more engaging than engaging, um, a number of elements that I think are essential, um, but that are less, quote, science-y. Uh, the first one is empathy. So in order to craft a story or a piece of content that's going to connect with someone, you first have to know what's relevant to that person. What do they want? How do they feel? And most importantly, why? So you have to start from that position of empathy and realize that if you're creating something, you're creating it for an audience. And ultimately, that audience is all that matters. That's number one. Then the next part of the equation is resonance. And I said to you earlier, we craft, test, and refine content that resonates. You have to be sure that what you're creating is going to connect with that audience and move them toward uh, that desired behavior. So it's how do you then, once you have empathy and you understand what's important to people and why, then how are you going to package and craft your message and your story and your content in a way that's going to resonate with those people. So empathy plus resonance, in my opinion, gets you to engaging. That's the formula to creating baseline engaging content. So the way we go a step further is we add to that equation the notion of a tribe. So in order for something to go beyond engaging, uh, you have to take the people you have engaged with and you then have to make them feel as if they are part of something larger than themselves. And they have to realize, hey, those people are like me or I'm like those people and I'm now part of something which is going to make this notion that's been communicated to me register with me on such a deeper level. So you have empathy plus resonance plus tribe gets you very close to what I call being engages. And then you multiply all of that. The final piece of the equation is by word of mouth, because for something to truly be uh, at that level of engagement, you not only want to influence the person or audience that's your target, but you then want to give them the incentive and even the tools to then spread that message to their circles of influence. So I call it word of mouth to the nth degree or W-O-M to the nth, where that then becomes the potential there is infinite. Uh, you don't, you know, people, it's, it's the whole and so on and so on and so on. It just keeps growing and growing and growing when you get that formula right. So when we sit down now to help clients work on messages and content and stories, we're starting to apply it against this formula of empathy plus resonance plus a tribe times word of mouth to the nth degree is what will then take you to this new level of engaging content than when you're just focusing on pure engagement would, would likely stop short. I have no idea how that sounds to you or how that's going to resonate with people. It's a little <laughs> bit of what's been rattling around in my, in my brain lately. And we do a lot of experimenting with things here. So I'm just kind of tossing it out there early and, and we'll see how it sits with people. Yeah, I like it. I'm, I mean, I, there's always tension around this, I think, right? Because, you know, if I'm honest, um, I always feel tension with the word formula, I think it's the artist in me. The artist in me is like formulas. Like, no, uh, that makes it seem like anyone can do this. And so there's this weird, uh, I just feel like 
yes, everyone can be a storyteller and no, not everyone can win an Oscar because there's an art to it. So it's, I don't even know that I have found a way to resolve that tension even in my own life and my own work. And even as I have dedicated so much of my life to inspiring other people to recognize that they are storytellers, that we're all storytellers, and that we all have the ability to be better storytellers. So I think frameworks are great. They're super helpful. And I think that's a great one. I think it's, it's when, when I hear the word formula, then I start getting like, oh no, are we stripping story of its magic? Because stories feel like these living, breathing things and you know, that's one of the advantages of just kind of flying without a net here and and tossing something out early. Uh, from your perspective, it's very helpful for me to hear that in your world, you know, formula is an F word um, that really <laughs> needs to be avoided. But yet, framework is a good is a good F word because to to your point, not. Everyone can be a storyteller, but it's intimidating to so many people that if you can give them a framework within which they can craft their art, uh, it's so much less intimidating than if you just say, go make art. Um, and that's where I think these these frameworks, I uh, agree with you, can, can certainly be helpful. But from here forth, I am forever retiring the word formula. <laughs> I don't think you have to, man. I'm not the expert. You are way more experienced at this than I am. Maybe some of the tension is the fact that when we follow formulas, things become fairly predictable. Because once you know the formula, you know how things pan out. And I think you can follow a framework and still surprise people. You can follow a framework and still remain mysterious. You can follow a framework and something can still be magical. Formulas kind of strip something of its magic and turn it from art into science. Um, and there's nothing wrong with science. Obviously, like much of your work has been involved in understanding behavioral science. Uh, but the, what I think makes you a great storyteller is not just your understanding of science, but how you take your knowledge and training in that field and apply it to making great art and telling great stories. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. And I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, also the notion of a formula doesn't leave room, doesn't leave room for play for experimentation. You know, in science, a formula is a very specific thing. Either you follow it or you don't. Um, whereas within a framework, you have a lot of latitude to stay within the general boundaries, but within that, uh, really make it your own. So you know, what's interesting about this conversation we're having right now is, I guess that this is the work that you do, right? Is you know, there's people out there who have very helpful frameworks to me, and the moment they use the word formula, um, I'm just like, oh, I don't, I probably, you know, wouldn't want to continue learning from this person. And isn't that isn't that the work that you're in? Is is identifying the fact that hey, you may have some really great things to say or a product that can legitimately transform your life. But sometimes you're just using the wrong words. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's where I said earlier, it comes down to a single word. I mean, imagine that imagine that I were crafting a storytelling package that I wanted to sell. And I'm not, by the way. But imagine that I were and something showed up in your inbox and you thought to yourself, all right, I'm in this business. Let, you know, let's see what this guy has to talk about. As soon as I use the word formula anywhere in that copy, you're done. You're out. 
no matter how good it is, you personally have that particular feeling. So when we do our work, we don't, we don't guess. Um, and in this, this is a perfect example of where if I were guessing, I'd be wrong. And I know that, which is why we never, we never guess what we think doesn't matter. It's only what our audience thinks that matters, but we also don't just listen to one person. Um, our research work involves, uh, you know, tens to dozens to sometimes hundreds of people so that we can validate, uh, you know, these ideas. And if out of that work, as we're talking to artists and creators and writers, it starts to bubble up that, hey, you've got this word formula peppered in this copy two and three times. And, and here's why that doesn't resonate with me. That's a golden moment for us. That's what we call that a moment of truth in, in our company, um, where we realize, oh, thank goodness we found it, at least one that's going to make a critical difference. So this would be akin to what we call an IDI or an in-depth interview, a one-on-one interview where I'm talking to you about an idea, which I did, and you're giving me feedback on it, which you did. That's one way that we do our work every day. It's fascinating. I would I would definitely warn you against using me as the only sampling of the audience. I tend to have weird, weirdly uh, formed opinions. <laughs> and I, I also love soapboxes for some reason. And so uh, it's easy for me to get up on those and start speaking passionately about them. You have a little extra credibility with me, though. <laughs> I'm processing out loud here everything that we're talking about. I guess it's because certain words trigger those passion points. And so is it is it finding the words that serve as triggers for certain people and removing those? I guess you don't want to go through all of your work and all of the effort is revolving around what words you shouldn't use for the sake of not triggering someone. There's also a positive side of this of figuring out what words you should use based on how you want them to feel. A lot of our work, it'll come down to, we'll, we'll tell people, here's what you should say and here's what you shouldn't say. But what we're most focused on is what you, is what you should say. So if we're going through our work and our job is to create a particular narrative or an advertising campaign or help someone with a speech, uh, if we're starting from the beginning, we're going to be much more focused on what you should say. And if we come up with drafts or versions and in our research, we start to uncover things that aren't working, then we're going to put those into the what not to say column, which is what happened in our, in our discussion here. I wasn't out looking for what not to say. I was curious about, you know, what, what should I say? And out of that, I also learned, oh, and here's something I probably shouldn't say. Uh, so we, we tend to lean toward the should, um, but we're keenly aware of the shouldn'ts. The truth is, I do need someone with David's expertise. I mean, we all do. Sometimes you need someone else to help you tell your own story because other people just have a better vantage point than you do. Sometimes it's just hard to be objective. They can see the characters and plot development with an outside clarity that you sometimes can't. And that's why people like David have a job. Everyone has a story, but not everyone can tell it by themselves. Part of me doing less and less quote unquote entertainment over the years and becoming more of a communicator was people coming up to me after a show almost apologetically saying, I hope this doesn't offend you. Don't get me wrong. The magic you performed tonight was great, but man, you're a great storyteller. And so it's hard for me to understand how can so many people think I'm a great storyteller and then me struggle so hard to figure out how to tell the story of story. 
Um, it's been one of the most complicated challenges I've ever faced. It's been really fascinating. Yeah. And yet it doesn't surprise me because it's your baby and you're so close to it and it's evolved over time, uh, with you in the bubble, looking at it from the inside out. And yet everyone that you mm-hmm. want to attract is outside the bubble. And even the people you work with are in the bubble with you. It takes that outside view uh, and it takes looking at it through a lens or a framework to figure out. And like you said, I, I don't think you're missing a lot, but your your point about the fact that you focus a lot on art and many of the people in that audience do not consider themselves artists. Artists are painters and artists are sculptors. I mean, that's the, you know, the predisposition that, that many people have. Um, Whereas, you know, of mm-hmm. course, mag- magic is art, but I don't think the common person thinks of a magician as an artist. And yet, um, I will never forget. And I know you called it one of your oldest tricks and you almost hesitated to do it. But man, when you made it start snowing on that stage, I swear to God, there were tears in the room and my heart <laughs> went up. I mean, that was, that was an artistic moment. Um, but that was performance art. That wasn't, quote, magic. So it's making sure that we, you know, tear down those walls, break through those barriers and, and realize how people hear things. Um, there's another great researcher in our field and, and his turn of phrase is, it's not what you say, it's what people hear. And you've, you've heard that type of phrase before, but it's 100% accurate. Um, it's all how, how the listener and the receiver processes what you've said And as you know, from any argument you may have ever had with a spouse or disagreement with an employee, and you wonder, how in the world did they get that from what I just said? Um, It's like, (laughs) as soon as it leaves your mouth or or your your sphere, um, it's out of your hands. And however that gets manipulated in the air and gets received on the other end, uh, you have very little control over at that point. Yeah, it's funny. Before you even went there, in my mind, I was thinking this is the marriage advice part of the podcast that we're venturing into. It totally applies. I mean, you know, like communication is communication, and whether you know whether I'm trying to sell a widget to millions of people or I'm you know I'm trying to be empathetic and have a, an important conversation at home. Uh, you know, the, the same principles of how people communicate are, are really, they're really the same. Yeah. I, one of my business partners, uh, we've been talking a lot about that lately is just stopping and pausing to make sure that there's no miscommunication. Just saying, even using that phrase, the story I'm telling myself right now is, you know, when you say that the story that I tell myself is, and it just eliminates all of that potential room for misunderstanding and miscommunication and resentment that builds up that, probably wasn't even intentional, you know, but if you begin like with my wife, we talk about this on a regular basis. If we begin from a place of understanding and trust that, okay, does this person care about me? Do they have my best interest in mind? And if I really believe those things, that means that if I'm feeling anything that contradicts that, there could potentially just be a miscommunication or misunderstanding happening. And so I just have to be honest and forthright and say, Hey, when you said that, the story I told myself was that you meant this. And it gives that other person the opportunity to correct that misunderstanding or communicate more clearly or apologize or, you know, whatever. But I respect so much about your work because it, it just comes down to, I, I joked around about like, oh, you're the guy that helps companies learn how to manipulate us, but it's really, you're one of the good guys playing for the right teams and just helping make sure that people are heard, that the audience is 
that they're trying to reach can actually hear them um, and hear what they they need to be hearing. Because there's a lot of people out there with incredible products, amazing services, even incredible nonprofit work that needs to be done in the world. And the world just doesn't know about it. And it's not because it's not the best product or the best surface or the best work. It's because they're not telling the best story. Um, and I love that you're you're playing for the right teams and helping helping people tell stories in ways that they actually are heard. Yeah, no, well, well thank you. I appreciate that. And um, it's, it's really fun and fascinating work, as you can imagine. I mean, you know, some days it's a little bit more mundane, just like any other job. And other days we're hit with a really, really interesting challenge. And we've got to pull out all of our skills and background to design some kind of a study or exercise that's going to help us learn what we have to learn. And, you know, even when I'm helping someone sell a product that I could care less about, what really matters to me is that there are people behind that product. There are people who design it and manufacture it and sell it and market it and do the accounting for it and do the janitorial services in the office where it's, where it's sold from. Um, and that's ultimately what matters. I mean, we're people serving people. As long as we're not playing for a team that, you know, that I just can't live with myself or sleep well at night knowing that I'm helping a, a particular group or someone that I don't want to help, it doesn't have to be something that matches my personal passion. My passion is the fact that there are people behind everything we do. And, uh, you know, if, if we can serve those people and make them all successful and let them go home at night and sit down and hopefully have a nice dinner with their families because they had a successful day at work, then that's a win. Yeah, we're, we're starting to do a lot of work through the Story Foundation and it's brought up a lot of interesting conversations of like, what, what would happen if we mobilize some of the world's best storytellers to solve global problems? And I said that to someone recently and they said, like, what? And I just brought up a simple example. In my mind, it was simple, but it was like a whole new paradigm was given birth to in this person's mind. And I was like, I mean, there are nations that are fighting each other. Those are the words that I said. Those are nations that are fighting each other, that are literally at war just because of storytelling problems. And you just have to establish a new narrative. And he was like, what, help me understand what you mean by that. And I was like, well, when you watch a, when you watch a film, an American-made film about war, and you see an American soldier in the Middle East you know, walking the streets of Iraq or Afghanistan or any Middle Eastern country and go back to the Hummer and pull out a soccer ball and give it to that little kid. There were no words that were exchanged, but that was an act of storytelling. That was the establishment, or at least the attempted establishment of a new narrative, repainting a picture of the story of America. And so it's like, yeah, I think there are ways that we could establish peace between nations just by telling better stories. Um, it'd be interesting to to lean into. Yeah, I completely agree with you. The power of of narrative and story and communication, I believe it's the most important thing. Everything, everything that's really ever happened in society has <laughs> has started with um, with either an understanding or a misunderstanding or some form of communication. People don't just go wake up in the morning and go do something. They do something because they have a belief or have heard a story or belong to a tribe that has all been built on some kind of, of a narrative. So it, it's not, I don't think it's an overreach to say that storytelling and communication is, is the underlying factor of, of just about everything, which is daunting in a way, but at the same time, it opens up mm -hmm. a tremendous amount of potential. Yeah. Is there any research out at least um, that you're aware of about, 
um, the same type of work that you've been involved in with behavioral science, but relating to nonverbal communication? There is actually. Uh, there's actually someone based here in Portland. Um, her company is called Science of People. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Her name's Vanessa Van Edwards. She's a, a friend of mine from Portland. She does a lot of work around nonverbal um, communication, around body language, uh, things like that. And there are a lot of experts out there, but she's someone I specifically know of, I actually think would be would be really interesting for you to uh, connect with them if you're interested. But yeah, you know, we focus so much on the written word and, and specifically through story, the, the spoken word. Um, but so much communication is non-verbal and it's how we present ourselves. But then that opens up a whole other world of biases. I was at another conference not too long ago and I was talking with someone who specializes in addressing workplace biases, but she doesn't specialize in gender bias or race bias or anything like that. She focuses more on behavioral biases. And, oh, if this person does something slower than me, then they must not be as smart as me. Or if this person can't multitask the way I multitask, uh, you know, then they don't have the brain power of me, or I never multitask because I'm focused on what I'm working on. And this person has three things going on at the same time. They must not care as much as me. And it was fascinating to hear her talk about that in the form of a bias or in the form of a discrimination that's behavioral, not about something that we hear about out in the world or something that happens in the streets, but something that can happen in our, you know, in our offices and, and in our homes. And a lot of that, most of that is completely unspoken. Yeah, man, that's so fascinating. I've even been spending some time thinking lately about nonverbal communication to ourselves, going back to the idea of the story that I'm telling myself is how much is our environment that we're in saying to us, but he told me about some research coming out of a university in California where just someone being in a state of awe shifts their physiology and they actually healed faster in the hospital to sickness and disease. And I was just speaking at a corporate event in Baltimore and a guy came up to me. I uh, was like, man, I've got to tell you about my friend who works at a children's hospital here in Baltimore. She just started this storytelling program in the children's hospital. And like all these kids are like getting better and they can't figure out why. And I'm like, actually, I know why. It's because stories are these vehicles that can be used to stir kids' imagination and awaken awe and wonder. And if my buddy's right about that other study about the role of awe and wonder, then I bet these kids are healing faster and getting better faster. And, you know, I go back to Yoko Sin, who shared the stage with you this year at Story, just talking about the sound environment of hospitals and, you know, how she realized when she was in the hospital that so many people are dying to the sounds of beeps and machines and it's just not a very great sound environment, and which makes me wonder, what is the story that our brains tell? What, what do we tell ourselves just by the way a room is designed or by the sounds that we hear um, and the words that are written on the wall of that hospital room? Um, is there a way to reinvent and retell a better story so that we tell a different story to ourselves, which awakens awe and wonder and hope and possibility, which means we might actually be able to heal from a disease faster just because of the story. That last part would be the most fascinating thing to see if it can really come full circle in that. I, be I personally believe in the power of that, and I hadn't thought about it the way she positioned it in her talk, but 
when I then thought about it and I, I realized that people are in a bad enough situation when they're in a hospital, let alone basically being surrounded by everything that's reminding them that they are not well and everyone around them is also not well, as opposed to being surrounded by the notion of um, you're getting better or because you're here, we're going to help you get better. I think that shift in, in narrative, not verbal narrative, but experiential narrative. I personally think it has tremendous power. Yeah, man, I'd love to get you in front of a bunch of doctors and nurses, just people who are interacting with patients on a regular basis. Because if all of this research proves to be true, and I guess it already has been, then just to get you training these people to communicate differently so that they tell a different story of possibility to the minds of these patients. I mean, who knows? We might heal faster from our sickness as a country just by you giving them better words. Well, and talk about a reason to get out of bed in the morning. I mean, like I said to you, I'll, I'll help sell pretty much any widget because behind that widget is a group of people. But, <laughs> you know, helping people heal from diseases faster and live, uh, you know, live better lives overall physically, that, that's amazing. And like you said, it's also the environment. And, you know, it, a lot of it can also be low-hanging fruit. And I live in the world of experiments. So, you know, I'm not going to say to a, to a health system, you need to redesign your entire hospital and change everything that everybody here says, but I sure as heck would love to take a little corner of one ward and experiment with some changes and see what kinds of, you know, even little things can make a difference. Like you said, words of encouragement on the wall or, or finding a way to turn off beeps that, you know, the nurses stand will hear, but patients don't have to hear necessarily all of that. And instead, maybe we pump in something a little bit more joyful and, and encouraging. And even the specific words that, you know, that are used by physicians. And I know many, most of them are, of course, very empathetic and, and don't want to do anything that's going to exacerbate the situation. But, you know, they're busy, fast-paced people who have to get on with it. And, you know, you, you never know how much thought is going into every word and, and how that might be heard. Yeah, so good. Uh, I will... To be continued then. There's a lot of uh there's a lot of work to be done in the world. And I love, you know, leveraging the story network to establish those new narratives and make the world look like a different place. It's just kind of the undertone of who we are. I know I've said it before, but just thank you. Thank you for being one of the good guys and being willing to share so much with us. Oh, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for for making me part of the the story family and and for having me on today. It's been it's been really fun. Yeah. In closing, if there was if there was one thing that all of the storytellers or people who uh, don't even see themselves as storytellers, even though we know that's what they all are, and they're listening to this, and they're going, just give me one one little nugget at the end. Um, it could be something that you've learned along the way, something that caught you by surprise, something a big aha epiphany that you've had recently. Um, what's a final piece of advice that you would share with everyone? The final piece of advice that would apply really just to everyone's lives, not necessarily to their work, is to take a step back from anything that you want to communicate and really think about whether or not what you're about to communicate is going to be received the way it's intended. Are you taking your intended audience, whether that's a person or a group of people, fully into account? 
when you're about to say what you're going to say or write what you're going to write or do what you're going to do, to have that empathy for the other side and make sure that, that you're in service to them with whatever it is uh, that you're going to do. And, and just taking that extra time to really think that through to make sure it's going to resonate the way you expect it to rather than just going for it, um, I think can make a tremendous difference personally and certainly in professional work. We could indeed all use a little more empathy right now. I'm so excited that we're only weeks away from announcing our Story 2019 theme, launching its accompanying new website, and just in general, filling you in on the direction we're taking our live gatherings this year. And yes, that's gatherings, plural. Story is not only gearing up for an incredible 2019 conference in Nashville this September, but we're going on the road and visiting cities all across America in an attempt to empower storytellers of all kinds and inspire some pretty courageous collaboration. Be sure to keep an eye on storygatherings.com. Again, storygatherings.com, go there. And if you aren't already on our email list, make sure you sign up while you're there. I really cannot wait to share more. It's coming very soon. In the meantime, I am Harris III. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Story Podcast. <laughs>